Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Safari Club International. I'm not sure everybody really knows what that means. I think a lot of people think, you know, African trophy animals, things like that. Um, But Safari Club does a lot of work across the country. You know, they work on international issues, as folks may think, but uh, federal, state issues do a lot of different things, have a huge convention. And uh, that's what I want to talk about. My, my guest today was uh, Chris Timeson. He works uh, for Safari Club and covers the whole western United States for Safari Club. And uh, just talked with him about the different things he's working on, you know, what, what they're up to. Chris has a really interesting background, a military background, law background. Uh, we kind of got into what, what Safari Club does and, and what he's doing here. We're at the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So uh, I, Chris is a smart guy, really good guy. I think folks will enjoy this one. Check it out. Chris Timeson, Safari Club International. Since 1936, the National Wildlife Federation has worked with hunters and anglers to pass the most important conservation laws of American history and to protect our sporting traditions. This podcast explores our history, our values, and the work we do to safeguard the fish and wildlife that fuel our passions. We are NWF Outdoors. What's up, everybody? Aaron Kendall here, NWF Outdoors podcast. I'm without my traditional co-host, Bill Cooksey, because I am at the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Conference in Santa Fe, New Mexico this week. So I wanted to take the opportunity to get a couple of people on the podcast. My guest today is Chris Timeson from Safari Club International. How's it going today, Chris? It's going great. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, I'm glad. We've been talking for a a little while about getting you on, and uh, I've only known you for what about, well, we've crossed paths quite a bit and then started to get to know one another uh, at the NASC Summit in Bozeman and 
you're a good friend of my good friend, David Wilms, and my colleague. And Who? Dave Wilms? <laughs> yeah. Who's that guy? Yeah, he's a <laughs> – we, we like to all poke fun at one another, so I appreciate that. But I uh, wanted to get you on and just talk about SCI. I think, you know, SCI has a, a unique place in, in the conservation world. And, you know, I think a lot of people think of, like, African hunts and different things like that. But you do a ton more than that, and that's a lot of what I wanted to kind of – pull out today but uh let me just let me just tell folks a little bit about you first uh chris is a lot has a long career i i wasn't aware of your illustrious legal career and all of that but so let's just introduce you first um you served in the military i, in, I did in yep. the army as an airborne infantryman and you went to panama and iraq I was stationed in Panama. I didn't. I wasn't there for the conflict, but I did okay. go to Iraq for in, during the first Gulf War. Yeah, and so that's that's interesting. Maybe we can talk about that a little bit more. And now you work for SCI. You've you've done some. You're a hunter education instructor. You recruit young people. That's pretty cool stuff. Um, you graduated from Missouri Southern State College, and then did uh, law school at Washburn University. You yep. live you live in Kansas, right near. I do. I live in Overland Park. It's a par- suburb of Kansas City. So you're, you're over there, and you serve the entire western United States pretty much for SCI, which is always impressive to me. I don't, <laughs> I don't know how you keep track of all of those things. Um, I have lots of spreadsheets that I have to look at every day <laughs> to make sure I'm following the right stuff. But I cover everything west of the Mississippi in a state and local liaison role. Great, and so that makes a ton of sense why you're here at the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies Conference, because all of those folks are here. Um, let's just start with telling us, just give me a broad overview of SCI, the mission, what you guys are about. SCI's mission is to protect hunting worldwide. And that's what we do every day. We have a, simple. a team and it's pretty simple. I support hunters and I support hunting and make sure that hunting proliferates into the future. That's awesome. And so you come to this conference and you've got all these agency folks, all these nonprofits, all kinds of partners. What, what do you do when you're here? What, what's your aim? So I like to attend the, the various committee meetings and in the hallway you make a lot of contacts with people and maintain those relationships so when something comes up in a state that's a concern to our membership or a concern to me, myself, I can reach out to those partners or those individuals and they know me on a first name basis and we can try to resolve the issue in favor of what you know SCI stands for. Yeah, and for folks who don't know these these, you know, agency meetings like this, there's all different kinds of committees. I spent a lot of time today in the mule deer and and, and black tailed deer working group. Um, there's there's you know things like endangered species yep. commissioners. There's all kinds of things. You know what you might imagine. A lot of agencies are dealing with as far as issues and um, different things they have to address as you know as wildlife agencies. So really cool to kind of get an overview and, and everybody together at once and then it's cool I think you and I both agree a lot of the work gets done outside of these committee rooms because we spend time with each other we go out for drinks we a lot of personal relationships lots of good stuff happening and one thing I should say too Chris is, is you have a huge law background you, you served with uh, the agencies themselves with AFWA talk, talk about that a little bit sure uh, I was the chief attorney for the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks for 22 years so I did a broad array of things like litigation. I was in charge of litigation. Um, I handled legislation over in the state house. 
uh, I was in charge of the regulatory program, so I would draft regulations, and when people would come and interface with the commission, helped facilitate that process, and then the commission would enact those regs, the hunting seasons and legal equipment and all the things you think about when you go hunting, fishing, park use. And then I handled some constituent services work, like people would get mad and they end up talking to me because I talk hunting and fishing because I am a huge hunter and angler and park yeah. user and boater and I'm an outdoorsman raised my family that way and yeah it, it was a good it was a good run and then SCI came calling but I also cha- I also was the vice chair of the AFWA legal committee for about 15 years and uh, the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies and they meet twice a year and then there's a regional association meeting so I would come to this meeting in my previous capacity just like I am now. Yeah that's a that's a big deal to think about all of those different states and the legal issues they're dealing with when it comes to fish and wildlife and hunting and all these issues. What's the craziest thing that came across your desk? Putting me (laughs) on the spot for a crazy thing. I like that one. Oh, I got some things I probably shouldn't talk about well, in the that one you regard, can. but, yeah. um, you know, it, I also did some tax work for the Department of Revenue before I came to Wildlife and Parks, and it's shocking that, like, you, you could take and put somebody in jail for not paying their taxes, and the, while they're upset or whatever, the, you know, the law is the law, right? Mm-hmm. But when it comes to hunting and fishing, if you mess with, I learned that if when you mess with somebody's hunting and fishing habits, like you change the rules, people come uncorked because mm-hmm. it's their recreational opportunity. So yeah. I dealt with a lot of those situations, and also hunters and anglers in general don't pay attention to those processes until it comes time to actually the reg is enacted and the law. Now this is the new law, and then they they're like, when did you start talking about that? Well, like two years ago. Yeah, right? public notices, all the stuff you missed. <laughs> all the now legal stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, good. Let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, SEI. You have a, a convention side and an advocacy side. You obviously work in the advocacy side. You have international, federal, state, communications. Like, unpack that a little. Help our listeners kind of explain what SEI does, kind of their chief aims, and then, you know, maybe boil it down to your work and all the different stuff you do in, in the states. Right. So we're in a, a, you know, a 501c4 association, right? So it's an advocacy organization. We've also got a 501c3 foundation side, which does conservation work out in the field. And we've got employees over there who are doing like bear research in the Yukon and things like that. We've got some really stellar employees doing that type of stuff. And then on the advocacy side, we've got, uh, like you said, we've got international. So we've got a couple people in Europe who are also lawyers. We've got, I think, eight lawyers now in the organization, but three in litigation. The rest of us are all in various segments of the organization. How many employees overall? I think around 80-ish. Okay. Plus, maybe we've added a few since I, I can't keep track of sure. since I started a year and a half ago, but we're on a roll. And so... Adding some folks here and there. Um, So uh, we've also got the convention you mentioned. And last year we had it in Nashville for the first time. It's the first time ever outside of uh, Nevada. It's either been in Reno or Vegas. And if you've not been to our convention, it's the world's largest hunting marketplace. It's like somebody analogized it as the Super Bowl of hunting shows. Hmm. Like you can come and if you want to go hunt in Asia, you can find an Asian outfitter 
an outfitter who hunts in Asia has a concession there or, or whatever it is that you are interested in doing. And then there's lots of other vendors. Like uh, I bought a suppressor this year when I was at the show from Silencer Central. And yeah. so, you know, there's other vendors at that show. And then there's the show banquets and the entertainment. And it, it's an incredible experience. And yeah. if you've not been, you should come highly encourage it so there's that segment of our organization we've got the in the 501c4 side and then we've got the advocacy people so i said two in europe we've got one federal uh, lobbyist we've got two state and local liaisons myself and a fellow named b frederick and he handles the east and he came from the congressional sportsman's foundation i came from obviously the kansas department of wildlife and parks um We've got three litigation attorneys, and they file amicus briefs in state court and federal court, or they'll actually file suit to, or intervene on behalf. More often than not, we defend the federal government on, on issues. Um, and then uh, they also watch like federal register postings on federal rulemaking. Uh, so we all work hand in hand together. We've got the communications folks. We've got a social media presence, and they put out stuff every day uh and then we within just in my job for example we have an alert system and so when you think about like we've got all these chapters in over 100 countries we've got chapters spread all across the united states so i work with our membership in those chapters you don't have to be in a chapter to be a member but uh i work with those chapters in those states and they're also my eyes and ears on the ground and they help me know about things that are conversational that are out there that aren't just like published on the web where I could find it. Yeah. That's interesting. So let's talk about, um, uh, you said something there that I'm interested in that defending the federal government more often than not. Right. Unpack that for me a little bit. What do you, what do you mean there? Well, I think that like, uh, for example, wolf delisting or grizzly bear delisting every time that the the federal government tries to delist wolves. It's like the Hotel California. I've heard that analogy. Like, yeah. you can check in on the endangered species list, but you can't check out, right? <laughs> yeah. And wolves are there, and grizzly bears are there. And, and so we're defending the delisting rules, Those which are, we can't seem to get past legally. Yeah, that's some good examples. Well, let's talk about your state work, because you have, what is it, like 18 states or something? 24. I think you said 20, 24 states. You know, keeping up with that's huge. Just walk us through, like, you know, what are you doing? You know, I, I interfaced you some in Colorado and some other states, but, you know, what are you guys looking at? What kind of work are you doing? How are you supporting state legislators and other and other bodies like that? Right. So every day I wake up and get my kids rolling, and then I start, I log onto my computer, and I read all my email that's come in overnight, and I look at the, the alert system that I have. I, you know, I've got, like, Autobots out there checking yeah. stuff, and they send me information, and when I see something important to our, our organization, and I think, you know, defending the right to hunt, mostly right now, I would say my, my, in the West, I'm focused on how commissions are made up and how they're interacting with the agency and the public. And then I would say carnivores or predators, right, is a huge part of what I'm defending because I think that people see carnivore management as... Um, if you're an anti-hunter, that's low-hanging fruit that you can pull down and try to mm -hmm. separate away from the pack. And so I spend a fair amount of time doing that. 
I'll look at regs, and I, I try to comment not just on, for example, Wyoming just published an open comment period on their mountain lion rig. I have no doubt that their commission is going to accept the recommendations of the department, roughly from what it's at, but there will be anti-hunting comments there. There are no pro-hunting comments, hardly, from organizations, so I try to comment on those, just to let people know that we're out there commenting and we're watching. I also engaged in Washington on the spring bear issue, right? The commission shut down their spring bear season. That was one of the first issues I dealt with when I came out of Safari Club. And in that case, I've done written testimony. I've done verbal testimony. I've done action alerts. We talked about the action alerts that I do to our grassroots members to try to get them to send in. And I've done probably four action alerts related to Washington spring bear season. Mm -hmm. just to try to proliferate that. In that case, the agency's got like 80 years worth of spring bear data that says it's okay to be conservative in a spring bear season and harvest this many bears. And the commission said, we don't really care. And we're just not going to have spring bear season. Yeah, it, maybe you want to unpack that a little more. I know we've seen in Colorado, we, we got rid of the spring bear season. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not a bear hunter myself, but Boy, I'd sure rather see those bears be harvested in, by a hunter than, uh, you know, just euthanized by the by the Fish and Game Agency. And I, you know, we both know Perry Will, former area wildlife manager. Now he's a state legislator in Colorado. And he, he's told me the story of, you know, used to be when they got a bear call, everybody would run because it was kind of cool to see him. And now everybody wants to go the other direction because... It often means bear trouble, euthanasia. Nobody wants to, you know, the, the wildlife officers don't want to euthanize a bear. And um, those, those issues have been exacerbated by not having any ability to harvest and, and take some of those bears as we need, you know, to reduce those, those conflicts. So I don't think a lot of people know, and maybe you can talk about this a little, some of the implications of when we remove that bear hunt, it removes a huge management tool. Right. We, some of we need issues. those tools, obviously. Yeah. And it, you look at it from, uh, let's just talk Africa. And, and to back to what I do, I do everything from rabbits to rhinos. That's what I like to say, right? Mm -hmm. I deal with small game. I deal with trophy imports. And you've got misguided trophy import bans. There's one in New York that passed, and it's unconstitutional. It's already been litigated in New Jersey, but the New York legislature went ahead and passed it this year. And and so now we'll end up getting into a litigation situation where the federal federal law trumps state law on importation of these certain species, right? But let's just say you could say Florida could pass a law that said you can't import uh, elephant trophies. Who does that hurt? And are we so colonial that we're willing to tell Africans that they don't know how to manage their own wildlife? for example. Mm -hmm. But if you can't import that elephant trophy, if the elephant has no value, the guy who has to live with it on the ground, the guy who's growing crops that the elephant raids is going to just kill the animal, mm -hmm. right? Because it has no value to him. He might sustain a loss on his field and be willing, or let's say you're a honey farmer, you, you're a, a, a bee guy living in Colorado. If you could have a spring season where you could harvest that bear and you're the landowner and the landowner's commodity is leasing really that's what the, they own access right they own the right to control access 
he might be willing to sustain that loss in his beehives because he knows that a hunter is going to come in and take that bear. Mm-hmm. If he doesn't have that ability, he's going to get a depredation permit from the government and, the, and then he's going to kill that bear. And the bear has no use, right? Mm-hmm. It's not used in the hunting sense. Nobody's taking the meat. Nobody's paying for wildlife management. My wife and I went to Canada to Manitoba and we hunted bears I don't know, five years ago. And my brother and I shot one the first and second night and my wife shot one the fourth night and we were hunting this farmer's property on the fourth night my wife was and as we got ready to take her to the stand the landowner said shoot whatever bear you want I don't care if it's a sow or it's a boar and that that to me was like I don't want to shoot a sow right I don't want my wife to shoot a sow and he he followed it up with I have depredation permits and I'm going to kill every bear I see after this as soon as the season's over because mm. it's eating my crops and it mm. therefore it has no value to me at the, at, at the point when the season's over. And I think when you take away, for example, in the Colorado scenario, you can't have, or Washington, you can't have spring bear. There are still ways that those bears are going to be harvested, killed, I like to think of them as killed. Killed, not harvested. Right. Yeah, in a lot of ways, yeah. Right. They're just killed and because they're a nuisance when they could be a credit to the system. And literally taken to the, the landfill. Right. Often. When yeah. I worked in Kansas, uh, deer depredation complaints, landowners would complain about deer, and we had a, a way to issue them permits. And, and there was no requirement that the landowner kept the meat. They could just shoot them and leave them lay. Some yeah. did, some didn't. And that seems super wasteful. Howdy, listeners. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. And for even more excellent content, here's a message from our partner podcast. Hey everyone, this is Ashley Chance from Artemis Sportswomen. We know you love awesome stories about hunting, fishing, and conservation. So head on over to the Artemis podcast. You'll meet adventurous, accomplished women who are redefining conservation through their lives in the field and on the water. Filled with humor, audacity, empathy, and intelligence, Artemis brings you new voices and introduces you to women from all walks of the sporting community. Find Artemis wherever you get your podcasts. What are you seeing out there on your radar in these states as you look across the Western landscape? You know, we're, I think you and I know a lot of Western issues, but for our listeners, you know, what, what are your big issues? You talked about one of them. Talk about a couple others and kind of look into the future. What are we going to be dealing with? Right. I think, well, there's always the importation ban stuff, but that's mostly in the coastal states. So I saw it in California a couple of years ago, right? That's where it started for me in that regard but the eastern states are dealing with that my counterpart b i think commission makeup this year in and i work in a lot of coalitions we, we work in that colorado coalition but mm-hmm. oregon and washington i'm in coalition there and some other states i can't do what i do on my own right it requires that we all collectively work together in partnership in in coalitions and we might not always agree and you don't have to sign the letter that the coalition puts forward or However, that works in in those states. But I spent a lot of time in Oregon this year working on uh, the makeup of the commission. And the Fish and Wildlife Commission in Oregon um, 
was based upon the congressional districts. And so that obviously centered those congressional districts were centered around population and that centered those commissioners around Portland. And that isn't necessarily representative of the people who have to live with the animals in the field, like in rural environments. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a, a voice in conservation just because you live in Portland or I live in Kansas City, but it shouldn't be overly weighted to where it's not the people living like the guy who's trying to farm next to the elephant herd that keeps marauding his crops right Mm -hmm. yeah we can't take away that voice either yeah it's been interesting i you know some of these commissions are actually starting to even see some antis on the commissions like very anti-hunting and i mean it maybe you can just kind of theorize on that because i i don't know you know with both revenue management tools. There's a, there's a lot of things that hunt, the key role that hunting plays in wildlife management for a myriad reasons. You know, wh- what's that look like if we, I mean, I can't imagine it's how, very the troublesome. Heck, how the heck we would do a lot of things if we didn't have hunting as a tool. Hunting pays for conservation. Hunting has paid for conservation for a hundred years or more. And when you look at, when I say pays for conservation, like in Kansas, my license dollars pay for endangered species management as well as game management. People don't realize that, but I'm paying for muscle propagation in Southeast Kansas rivers to ensure that we have clean streams and healthy biodiversity and hunters dollars have paid that way. Nobody else is paying that. And so I think that's problematic when you get a commission that comes on and is anti-hunting. Washington's the prime example of that right now, right? And there was a commissioner in Washington, and I'm paraphrasing, but basically there was a debate over increasing cougar harvest because the mortality on elk calves in the Blue Mountain elk herd uh, was too much that the herd was going down. It was going to be below objective. And her comment, paraphrased, was, I don't care. Why should we kill cougars just so hunters can kill more elk yeah it's and this that totally discounted the fact that there was concern about the biological status of the herd and the herd decreasing below what they thought was the safe capacity of you know carrying that herd forward into the future ensuring that the herd propagates uh so taking that to the nth degree you're willing to let that herd blink out just because you disagree with hunting that doesn't seem very conservation minded yeah i think i mean it's it's a tough one i you know because so few people really know that much about wildlife and how it operates you know they see it out there it's pretty and you know that's kind of it um and i and hunters you know in, in my experiences usually know a decent amount about what's going on out there and the ecology and so there's that other factor too is if you take away more hunting opportunities you're losing you know advocates and people who actually know this stuff and and understand some of this stuff on the ground and i think that's a part that's that's pretty you know would would be really detrimental besides just the fact of what hunting does as a management tool right um so maybe chris you can talk a little bit more too about just like what are you doing here wouldn't you come here you know what kind of what kind of things are you talking with agency folks about or, you know, committees you're participating in? You know, what, what's SCI's drive when they come here? So 
you know, yesterday everything kind of kicked off and swung by the law enforcement committee. That's kind of my background is I have a law enforcement undergraduate degree and then uh, I kind of affiliated myself within the agency towards the law enforcement when I first came on advising law enforcement. So kind of try to keep up on a little bit of criminal law, the trends that are happening and, you know, I talked about the Department of Revenue before, but like some of the same people that I ran across who had tax issues with the Department of Revenue were also people who committed wildlife crimes. And the, hmm. it, it's like ten when people say 10% of the or 3% of the public commits crimes across the it's across the board. Those people you run into the same names, yeah. uh, weirdly enough. So I swung by there and then I went by the commissioner's committee because I I have some concerns about, as I said, commissions and where we go in the future and who's talking about what. And, you know, I had this experience where I had some antis at a commissioner committee and whispering in the ear of commissioners. And I wanted to make sure that I'm there so they know that I'm listening and hunters are out there listening. And then uh, today there was a commissioner committee and this afternoon is a director committee and so kind of go to those things tomorrow i'm going to go to the legal committee because i used to be part of that and still am really just in a different capacity and and uh so that's kind of what i'm doing i'm having conversations about whatever the topic is in those states uh, i was talking with some folks from arizona earlier today about mountain lions and their regulatory process and why we commented and Last year, there was a big effort by uh, some anti-hunting forces. They have a five-year hunt guideline that they put out, and it's kind of the framework for how they set their annual regulations. And there were some anti-hunting groups trying to flood the commission with anti-hunting rhetoric about those five-year hunt guidelines. And I came back with my own action alert to our membership and asked them to put comments in and it was about bears and mountain lions and bobcats and then i rallied the nra and some other folks other people that i work with at our level that uh, to get them to start getting their members to submit those so those are the type of conversations that i'm having where do you see this commission thing going i mean it seems like there's you know a push and you know i i think if I look back on our history of how commissions have been made up, they've traditionally been made up of a lot of sportsmen and women, outfitters, guides, that type of people. You know, I, I, and I think I would fault our community a little bit that in the past we've kind of really resisted any change to that, and maybe we should have been a little bit more, you know, welcoming to some more diverse voices. But I've also always said there should probably be some sort of a threshold of biological knowledge you know, to where you have to un- have to have a biology degree or some some sort of, because you know it, it these appointments are problematic in my mind because they're political and they swing all over the place and who knows what you're going to get. You know, to just lay that out. What do you where do you see this going? So I you know I, I get what you're saying about minimum qualifications, but it's also supposed to be a citizen committee commission. Like if we wanted to stack it with biologists. I don't know that that's the best thing, but have a biologist on there, okay, or a retired biologist or somebody who's in a private sector in in that type of role. Um, You know, states are all across the board. Some states have, and in the Midwest, we had, it's like you have to give consideration to hunters and anglers and in Kansas, park users. 
and that type of thing. But there's no requirement that somebody held a hunting license or was a hunter or, you know, they, they can learn some of those things on the job. I do find it disconcerting when you put people who think that they have the science when I tend to be an agency guy and flip toward, lean towards, you know, believing agency scientists. I don't believe that people who've dedicated their entire career out there lying about what the science is on bears, for example. If you've got 80 years worth of data, okay. I've seen some people say that they don't believe in that science, particularly in the Washington case. They have their own science. And I, I think that's troubling for sure. I don't know that you can stop that political process, you know, the appointment process. I think it is troubling when you talk about the length of those commissioner's appointments. Some are six and some are eight years, depending on the state. Some mm -hmm. are four. Over a six-year period, that's troubling. I think if you, even Kansas, for example, had Democrats and Republicans, it had to be no more than four of any one political party. And even when you add hunters of different political parties, which really typically doesn't come into play in a hunting issue, right? There's not much separation as long as they're all hunters and anglers. But when you throw anti-hunters into that mix, it's really troubling. And they, you know, if you're adamantly opposed to the number one funding mechanism for hunting or fishing or conservation, what's your alternative? Yeah. Are, are you are you paying for it if you're not a hunter or an angler? Even a park user or a boater, right? They fund. It's a user pay system. That's the whole concept of the North American model. Mm -hmm. And if you come in and you disagree with the funding mechanism, what's what's your approach? Yeah. I don't know that there is one. Yeah, I've not seen a, a great alternative I at all. Right. Well, I, I guess what I mean, too, is, you know, some baseline level of biological knowledge. I mean, I'm familiar with, you know, some commissioners that just have no idea. And it's a wildlife commission, right? Like, it seems like you, you should have to have some... Maybe even it's an initiation process or something, right? Like in the beginning. Right. We did an through. orientation, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't disagree with you. And you would assume that if somebody is a hunter or an angler, they have some baseline biological information or they, you know, they've been to hunter, <laughs> right. yeah. they've been yeah. to hunter ed and they, they know how the funding mechanism works. And yeah, they know that, you know, the North American model is allocation, equal resource to all type of scenario. Right. So, I get what you're coming, where you're coming from. It, it takes a statutory change in most states. And is the governor willing to give up that power? Yeah, no. What about recreation? I mean, it, I know in, in my state, Colorado, you're familiar too. I mean, recreation and hunting and just wildlife are really starting to butt heads. You know, there's just, you know, you've got fat bikes now and e-bikes and all these things that are, you know, making the habitat less viable. You've got development. You've got all these developments that are in winter range that everybody wants to hike out their back door and go up and, you know, what, in your, in your world, what do you see in there? Is that happening kind of across the West? Is it happening? Certainly. I think development, I think is the number one threat, it, loss of habitat. And it's not just, a, I mean, if you look at the Midwest where I live, if you have some sort of disturbance in prairie chicken range that causes chickens to displace and they, they don't have that lek or the breeding ground anymore, uh, development is the number one 
I think, threat to so wildlife. How, so how does SEI come down on that? I mean, it's 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 kind of like defending the right to hunt, but maybe maybe not exactly. How does how do you work yeah, through I, that? I think it's troubling. You know, you look at. Uh, I'll just give you an example of like. Farm Bureau in Kansas or the Kansas Livestock Association opposes public property purchases, right? Just generally. And so there there would always be a battle over, in Kansas, you couldn't buy 160 acres without the permission of the legislature, over 160 acres, which is pretty wow. pretty tough yeah. to overcome. And so, but they can't do anything about, like, Johnson County, where I live, is the fastest growing county in Kansas, more is gobbled up in Kansas, in Johnson County, Kansas, every day by development, more wildlife habitat is, but Farm Bureau doesn't say anything about that, for example, right? So mm-hmm. I think it's tough. It's a tough position to be in, uh, especially when you're talking about selling private property to another private property owner who's going to develop it, right? I try to stay out of those battles. Yeah. So- Just do what I can to influence policy in in the directions that if you're going to develop hey let's do it in a way that's wildlife friendly sure well what do you think that in your mind or in sci's mind maybe you know what's the number one threat right now what like if to hunting you know you're defending hunting every day you're seeing it across all these states federally internationally you know what's our big threat right now well i think you know you've got a, a decline in hunting long term right and i think that sportsmen are apathetic in general when i say that it's not a knock on them but like when game populations are high and you can shoot six deer you don't come to the commission meeting to complain because you can shoot one buck and five toes right game populations are high and we state wildlife agencies have done a great job managing it with the help of ngos bringing populations back from the brink alternatively if you're not there Somebody else is chipping away at, at what you believe in, right? And so when sportsmen are apathetic and they don't show up to commission meetings, that allows people who oppose hunting as a conservation tool to slip in there. And I think that's pretty much the number one threat, in my opinion. Yeah, you said something earlier, too. You said, you know, we hunters pay for conservation. I've been saying a lot, and I think it's true. It's not enough anymore, right? Like, we have this huge privilege, and, and, and with more people more technology, like you got to do more than just buy your tag and, and right. show up the next year. Maybe you can wax on that a little because I, I, I feel that really strongly and I see it. It's kind of imperative. It's not even really a choice anymore. If we just buy our license and walk away, we'll just see it go downhill. Right. I think, you know, during the pandemic, well, I think we all have an obligation to recruit new people. Like I fish almost every day, fished 256 days last year. But during the first year of the pandemic, I took eight new people fishing who had never fished before, right? Helping to create new hunters and anglers. That's, I kind of live by that mantra. And we're selfish as individuals. We don't want to share our favorite spots. Would you give up your favorite elk spot to some stranger? You know, but you would to your child or your brother. Or your, so... I think everybody has an obligation to do that. But also, I think you, hunters should be engaged. And with technology changes, Zoom, we talked a little bit about Zoom before this. Like, 
you can be at every commission meeting for the most part if you want, or they're live streamed, or you can watch it later. You have an obligation as a hunter to show up and voice your opinion, because if you don't, somebody's going to voice it for you, and it's not going to be something you like. Yeah. I, t- I, I like to say with the big privilege, we have the obligation. So I really right. try to, you know, I, th- I mean, I think that's a lot of why we do this work, why we have these conversations. So folks know what are ha- know what's happening out there, who the advocates are, how they can help, those kinds of things. Um, what else What else do you want to tell us? I mean, I know we've we got a bunch of committees we'd like to go to, and you're carving out some time for me, which I appreciate. But anything else you want to you wanna wax on before I let you go? Well, SCI, I'll just talk a little bit about that. Sure. It's an all-species. All It doesn't matter what you like to hunt. I'm there to help defend it, and I need your help. I'd like you to join, right? Become a SCI advocate. You can join our Hunter Action Alerts. It's called a hack. It's on our website, safariclub.org, right? Go sign up. We I can tailor those messages to a state or to a region or go national, but I send out spoon feed that information right to your email, tell you who to contact to voice your opinion, to influence decision makers. So go sign up. And if you like us, join us, right? The other thing is if you see something out there, say something, it's back to that obligation, right? Mm -hmm. I can't be everywhere. You can't be everywhere. I have to rely on people on the ground and if you see something, you have an obligation to say something. If it's detrimental to hunting, fishing, trapping, speak up. Good. We'll put we'll put a link to your to your site on the, uh, on the show notes when we do this. I got to ask you one more question. I think you got out fishing last night. How'd it go? Well, I saw some beautiful country. I did not <laughs> catch any fish. Okay. I uh, I tried a, a little lake. I went about forty miles east. Left here about five o'clock and. Uh, Got out there probably around six-ish and and uh, did a little bit of lake fishing. And then I went into the Pecos River, found a couple spots. But uh, they were pretty, hit pretty hard. Let's put it that way. Yeah. Well, somebody's using these resources, right? Even right? more reason to advocate. So, well, thanks, Chris. I appreciate your time. It's uh, It's been good getting to know you some and having these conversation and, uh, you know, working with you a little across some of these states. So, Appreciate you spending some time with us, and uh, happy trails, and we'll talk to you soon. Yeah, thanks for having me. Cheers. For more great content, check out NWF Outdoors social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Connect with us. We want to hear from you. Send us your ideas for podcast guests and questions in the comments. We are... NWF Outdoors.